Hey guys, when you search for Bible-related stuff, virtually all the results are from Christian pastors and apologists. Yeah, to find real biblical criticism, you need to dig down. Most people never even learn about all the scholarship out there, which debunks a lot of the evangelical claims. Yeah, there's an entire well-funded industry of biased Christian content out there. Our show tries to offer a counter-argument to them, but we rely on our listeners to keep the show going week after week. If you'd like to support the show, please check out our Patreon at www.patreon.com slash Skeptics Bible Project. Thank you to all those supporting us. We hope you enjoy the show. I'm John. And I'm Ben. And this is the Skeptics Bible Project. We read the Bible so you don't have to. I don't care too much for preachers. I don't like to go to church. But I'd hate to meet St. Peter when my body leaves this earth. Hello and welcome to the show. This is the Skeptics Bible Project, the show where we discuss all things related to the Bible, always from a non-religious point of view. Great to be with you tonight. Ben, how are you? I'm doing good, John. How are you? Really excited about the show tonight. We are going to take a close look at something most Christians believe about the nature of God, that being his omniscience. They believe that the God of the Bible knows everything. He knows everything you are thinking. He knows everything that has happened and will happen. But I think a lot of Christians might be surprised to find out that the Bible doesn't always agree with this idea. So we'll get into that in a minute. But I know, Ben, that you have a news item you wanted to talk about today regarding extremist white nationalists and their growing popularity in America. Yeah, we have a piece that's actually um, from Politico, and it has to do with Christian nationalism. The big headline is Christian nationalism gaining steam on the right. Christian nationalism, a belief that the United States was founded as a white Christian nation, and that there's no separation between church and state is gaining steam on the right. Um, and then it shows some statistics. So the percentage of respondents in favor of or opposed to declaring the U.S. a Christian nation by party. So in favor, 61% of Republicans are in favor of declaring the United States a Christian nation. Uh, 39% oppose. Uh, of Democrats, 17% are in favor, and 83% oppose. Um, and so in total, uh, 38% of the country uh, in the United States thinks that we should be declared a Christian nation, and 62% are opposed. This was from the University of Maryland. Um, it does break down a little bit by age demographics um, amongst the younger generations, even younger Republicans. Um, they're less supportive of Christian nationalism. And most Republicans say Christian nationalism is unconstitutional, but they still support it. Um, and older Republicans are more likely to support Christian nationalism. Yeah, I mean, to anyone who's been paying attention to politics over the last few years, We've seen a huge rise of the radical Christian right. I think it's safe to assume that people who want America to be a Christian nation are the same people who have racist views on immigration, and many are anti-Semites, as we've seen a growth in that as well. 
Charlottesville comes to mind. So my first thoughts right off the bat are, do these people actually know what Jesus taught? Because anyone who has listened to this show knows that Jesus didn't teach a very right-wing agenda. I think many of these people would be surprised to find out about this guy named Jesus who they claim to worship and what the Bible actually says about him. My impression of white nationalists is that they aren't very familiar with the Bible or the actual tenets of their own faith. I also wonder if they understand the implications of what a quote-unquote Christian nation would look like. You know, people have tried this before in history. I think if they look it up, they might not be as excited about the prospects of inquisitors and a justice system controlled by the church. I mean, maybe they do want a Handmaid's Tale style government, but I think most people wouldn't really enjoy that, and definitely not women. I also find it interesting that these same people who want America to be an explicitly Christian nation also claim the Constitution as a badge of honor. They hold it up right next to the Bible. Well, the Constitution explicitly outlaws America being a Christian nation. Um, We have a separation of church and state, thankfully. And like you said, they know this, but they don't really care. It's a funny issue whenever people talk about uh, Christian nation, um, specifically when they're talking about the the history of the United States. It it really is a question of defining your terms. Like... um, you know, do you mean the majority of the pop? Like, what do you mean by a Christian? We were a Christian nation, so the majority of the people that settled here were Christians. The ones that came over um, on the Mayflower were Christians. What about the people that came over to Jamestown? Were they the Were they the ones that established the Christian nation? Um, you know, what about the founding sin of slavery for this country? What did that mean? Like, was could that really be consistent with a Christian nation? Um, there were like a huge prominent number of deists on uh, in who were part of the founding fathers. So people that believed that God was the clockmaker who wound up history and then just let it run. It was not intervening, didn't answer prayer, wasn't personal. Um, are those people the Christians that they're talking about founding the nation? So, I mean, certainly um, there's always been a strong... Uh, Christian influence in this country, but that influence has not been monolithic. Um, It's been different people of different faiths. I mean, certainly the antebellum slave owners thought that they were Christians, and they thought that their society was this perfect utopian Christian society. Um, But the uh, abolitionists in the North also thought of themselves as Christians. Um, And the slaves we're also uh, holding on to Christian narratives about, um, in as much as they were had access to them, which was limited, but in as much as they had access to them, were affirming Christian narratives about like the Exodus uh, to um, to uh, inspire them towards um, freedom. So. The problem with these polls are the terms are really undefined. So, you know, someone might say, oh, well, the Christian nation, and they have a totally different conception um, than Marjorie Taylor Greene or, you know, these real Christian nationalists. Um, but the fact that Christian nationalism is on the rise is a really troubling thing in this country. And I think like the last thing that I'll say about this is t- two things that this country is not lacking in is Christianity and nationalism. If anything, 
the nationalism in this country is so out of control. Um, I mean, when they say Christian nationalism, they really mean white people, white nationalism. And Christianity, as much as the uh, Christian church likes to pretend that they're so persecuted in this country, um, every president that's ever we've ever had in this country has been a church-going uh, person. Literally 99% of any person that's ever been part of the institutions of the United States has been someone that's claimed to be a Christian. Um, most of them white male Christians. So spare me your persecution complex. And, um, and I think, if anything, we should be understanding that our nationalism has played a part in destabilizing countries all over the world through our military and that um, to double down with some sort of nativist hate towards um, people that are now being displaced because of some of the policies that we have in this country, um, foreign policies is just a double sin. Yeah, I totally agree with that. I also think that um, a lot of these white nationalists that would claim uh, Christ as their uh, leader— they probably don't really understand the teaching of Jesus because if you are to, and we should do this on the show at some point and talk about, for instance, what would Jesus do regarding immigration? Um, some of the strongest language that Jesus uses in the entire Bible is aimed at those that are not kind and welcoming to foreigners and people that are requesting help from, uh, from a foreign nation. And, um, I feel like so many of these quote-unquote white Christian nationalists, they don't uh, actually understand what the Bible actually teaches. I think going forward for us, that's probably going to be a theme that we're going to return to a lot. Yeah, absolutely. I think uh, either uh, people that abuse the poor and uh, dispossessed are one target of Jesus, and the other major target is religious authorities and people that think that they're... Um, their uh, outward righteousness allows them to look down on others. All right, Ben. So our main topic today has to do with the omniscience of God. Does God know everything? Um, it's a pretty standard belief among Christians, um, definitely fundamentalist Christians, that God is omniscient. He knows everything. He knows all. It, it also is a standard teaching that God is um, omnipotent and omnipresent, which means he's all-powerful and he's everywhere all at once. So he knows everything, he's everywhere, and he's all-powerful. This is These are basic attributes that um, Christians to this day hold uh, as far as the nature of God. And so what does the Bible actually say about this? Well, I'm going to read a little section from a Christian article from gotquestions.com regarding this. Omniscience is defined as the state of having total knowledge, the quality of knowing everything. For God to be sovereign over his creation, all things, whether visible or invisible, he has to be all-knowing. His omniscience is not restricted to any one person in the Godhead. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are all by nature omniscient. God knows everything. In 1 John 3.20, it specifically says that. He knows not only the minutest details of our lives, but those of everything around us. 
for he mentions even knowing when a sparrow falls or when we lose a single hair. Matthew 10, 29-30. Not only does God know everything that will occur until the end of history itself, Isaiah 46, 9-10, but he also knows our very thoughts, even before we speak forth, Psalm 139, 4. He knows our hearts from afar. He even saw us in the womb, Psalm 139, 1-3, and 15 and 16. Solomon expresses this truth perfectly when he says, For you, you only, know the hearts of all the children of mankind. That's in 1 Kings 8.39. So, these, these are the reasons generally that Christians hold to the omniscience of God. And I wanted to take you through some very interesting verses that seem to say the exact opposite. So, let me start in Genesis at the beginning. So, this is um, Adam and Eve in the garden. This is Genesis 3, 8 through 13. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. He said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. So you have here God asking questions that if he were omniscient, he would know the answers to. So I understand the... The first criticisms that people will say uh, when they hear me say this is they say, well, you can't take Genesis literally. Well, first of all, fundamentalists do take Genesis literally. So if they have God saying a quote in the Bible, they believe that God actually uttered those words. The other thing, which I think is a more valid criticism, is to say that um, we don't know if... God was speaking to Adam in a way so that to make a, a larger point. So God clearly did know the answer to these questions, but he's he's asking the question kind of rhetorically to um, prompt Adam to reveal the truth, uh, and that's very possible. But there's more examples. So now that was Adam and Eve, but let's let's move on to the flood, the next major event in the Old Testament. Um. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. So if that's a true statement, and that's in Genesis 6.6, 6, if that's a true statement that um, God regretted making man, well, this would also tend to the idea that God is not omniscient, because surely he would have seen um, ahead of time, he would have had future knowledge that, hey, this isn't going to work out too well. Um, so the idea of God regretting something that he did seems to go counter to this idea that he knows all. Let me give a couple more examples. The Tower of Babel is another story soon after the flood in Genesis 11. This is, this is Genesis 11:4, And they said, Go to, let us build us a city and a tower whose top may reach unto heaven, and let us make 
us a name, lest we be scattered abroad upon the face of the whole earth. 11.5. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man built. And the Lord said, Behold, the people is one, and they have one language, and this they began to do. And now nothing will be restrained from them, which they have imagined to do. Go, let us go down, and there confound their language, that they may not understand one another's speech. The passage demonstrates three instances, actually, of God's lack of knowledge. One, if God were omniscient, he wouldn't have to come down to see. He would know without having to come down what the people were doing and what their intentions were. Two, God did not know humans were incapable of building a tower whose top may reach unto the heaven. So this one, um, yes, it deals with God's omniscience, but it also deals with this idea that uh, that wh- like why is God concerned that um, human beings would be able to build a tower tall enough to actually reach heaven? Um, we want to do this in a more detailed episode specifically about the ancient view of the cosmos because um, in the ancient world, they did not understand the world to be a a sphere rotating around the sun um, in the Milky Way galaxy. They envisioned the cosmos to be very different. And yes, there was a belief that um, if you got high enough, you could reach the realm of the gods or God. And um, this is a very ancient story, and it actually has God being concerned about that. What if man reaches our level? And um, again, dealing back to omniscience, um, this does not seem like something an omniscient God would be concerned about. And again, this is an actual quote from God here. Um you know, this is this is God saying these things. And again, Christian fundamentalists, they believe that God uttered every word that is quoted of him in the Bible. The other problem with omniscience from this passage is God not knowing that we're already multiple languages. So if you go back to Genesis 10, which happened chronologically earlier from the Tower of Babel, um, the nations were already divided. So Genesis 10, 5, by these were the isles of the Gentiles divided in their lands, every one after his tongue, after their families in their nations. So the, the idea that at the Tower of Babel is where all the languages were first created um, doesn't really make sense with the Bible because that had already happened earlier in Genesis. So it's it's pretty obvious that there are two different accounts here trying to explain a um, the phenomenon of language, and they each tried to explain it in their own way, and both of these traditions ended up in our Bibles. So this is interesting because now we're going through all these major stories in chronological order that we find in the Old Testament, and all of them have evidence of God not being omniscient. So now let's move on to Sodom and Gomorrah, also in Genesis. Sodom and Gomorrah, Genesis 18, 20 through 21. Then the Lord said, The outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is so great, and their sin is so grievous, that if that I will go down and see if what they have done is as bad as the outcry that has reached me. If not, I will know. This one is pretty explicit also. It's really hard to interpret this in any other way if you are a fundamentalist that believe that God actually uttered these words, because it says... I will go down to see 
if what they have done is as bad as the outcry that has reached me. If not, I will know. So there's some kind of outcry that has reached God, or else he wouldn't have known. Like the way he is even alerted to this is because there's some sort of outcry that has reached him. He has to go down and inspect. Um, Again, not very consistent with the idea of an omniscient God. It strikes me as humorous that he's like, I'm getting these messages, so I'm going to go down and check it out and just see. Yeah. Make sure it's not a false (laughs) message that I'm getting up here. Sometimes the signals get crossed. So, you know, I just want to just check and make sure that somebody could be playing a prank. It sounds funny, but that's exactly what it's actually saying, right? I mean, yeah. I'll go down and see what they have done is as bad as the outcry that's reached me. So the calls come up. Right. He's not sure what's going on. He's got to go down and find out if it's as bad as what he's, what they're saying. He's like, I can't believe this. I, I mean, it can't be that bad. I'm going to check it out myself. Right. <laughs> and uh, if I can't get there, I'll send my son. <laughs> well, that's much later. And we'll get to that. Let's stay on point. So in Hosea, um, God says, They made kings, but not through me. They set up princes, but I knew it not. With their silver and gold, they made idols for their own destruction. Again, you have God not knowing something. Um, and then there's there's uh, several other instances of God testing uh, people. A test is basically you are um, you are doing some sort of a uh, a way to validate something or a way to discover some kind of information. You don't you don't do a test if you already know everything. So the idea that God is testing people, uh, again, I think cuts against the notion of God's omniscience. In Deuteronomy 8, 1 through 2, God reveals that the 40 years in the wilderness was a test done by God to find out what was in people's hearts, whether they would still obey orders. Now, a lot of the um, verses that talk about God being omniscient talks about how God knows um, everything about us. He knows what's in our hearts. But here's a a section in Deuteronomy where God actually has to like acquire that information. In Deuteronomy again, Deuteronomy 13, 1 through 5, God sends some false prophets and wonder workers as tests to see if people will follow other gods. And 2 Chronicles 32, 31, God is doing similar fact-finding tests. And this comes from thechurchoftruth.org, those last few points about the tests. So that's a lot of evidence from the Old Testament, and there's more. I didn't, it's not a comprehensive list, but there seems to be, um, if you were trying to read the Bible and come up with an idea of who is this God character and what are his attributes, it would be logically impossible to, to conclude that he is omniscient because he is literally investigating things to find out. He's creating, he's devising tests so that uh, he can understand people's hearts. All of this cuts against the fundamentalist, uh, which I think is the, the most common view of Christians, uh, not just in America, but in the world about God being omniscient. Um, But maybe, um, it's different in the New Testament. So, was Jesus omniscient? So, here again is the Christian perspective from Got Questions. 
His omniscience, meaning Jesus, is clearly seen in the New Testament writings. The first prayer of the apostles in Acts 1.24, Lord, you know everyone's heart, implies Jesus' omniscience, which is necessary if he is able to receive petitions and intercede at God's right hand. On earth, Jesus' omniscience is just as clear. In many gospel accounts, he knew the thoughts of his audience. And here's some references, Matthew 9.4, 12.25, Mark 2.6-8, Luke 6.8. He knew about people's lives before he had even met them. When he met the woman collecting water at the well in Sychar, he said to her, The fact is you have had five husbands, and the man you now have is not your husband. John 4.18. And it goes on. He also tells his disciples that their friend Lazarus was dead, although he was over 25 miles away from Lazarus's home. That's in John 11, 11 through 15. He advised the disciples to go and make preparation for the Lord's Supper, describing the person they were to meet and follow. Mark 14, 13 through 15. Perhaps best of all, he knew Nathaniel before ever meeting him, for he knew his heart. And that's described in John 1, 47 through 48. So again, this is the Christian perspective, and they are claiming that Jesus, the earthly Jesus, was omniscient. I remember growing up in church, this was explicitly taught, and um, I believe is the standard view among Christians today. But I think there is, again, just like we saw in the Old Testament, evidence that um, this is not the case. In Mark 13, 32, it appears that Jesus does not know the day or the hour of the second coming. So Mark 13, 32 says, But concerning that day or that hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Well, the Son is Jesus, and he's saying, I don't know the day or the hour. So again, right there, that would logically... Uh, exclude omniscience for Jesus. In Mark 5, verses 30 through 32, uh, a woman who is having a hemorrhaging issue is thinking that all she has to do is touch the garment of Jesus to be healed. And in fact, she does this. And then in verse 30, it says, at once Jesus realized that power had gone out of him. He turned around in the crowd and asked, who touched my clothes? You see the people crowding against you, his disciples answers, answered, and yet you can ask, who touched me? But Jesus kept looking around to see who had done it. This one is interesting because um, you can't really say on, in this verse that Jesus is just kind of using that question rhetorically, um, because it then goes on to say, he kept looking around to see who had done it. So clearly Jesus did not know who did it, according to the author of Mark. Um and again, that cuts against this idea that Jesus know, knew everything. Um, we have passages in Luke that talk about, um, this is in uh, Luke 2, I believe, and it's um, after his birth, while Jesus was growing up, this is after the story about him going off from the caravan on his own to teach the rabbis. Anyway, it basically says that, Afterwards, Jesus grew in knowledge and stature, which again, if you're growing in knowledge, it assumes that you did not have all the knowledge and now you're growing in it. And I've also wondered, people that say Jesus, when, when he was on earth, was omniscient, did they, do they mean the baby Jesus also? Like when did, and if not, does that mean that 
um, at some point, like all the all the wisdom of the world just kind of came upon him at some point, or and if he had to grow and learn these things, what what are the implications of that? Um, and if Jesus is not omniscient, then I would say by default that would mean he could be wrong. So when if he thinks he's the Messiah, I mean, there's a lot of people that now think they're the Messiah or throughout history have thought they were the Messiah or even thinking that they were God. Um, so if Jesus was not omniscient, uh, you, I think, have to leave that as an open hypothesis that Jesus could have been like any other um, cult leader who is claiming to be the Messiah or claiming to be God. Yeah, I think it's interesting with Jesus... Um because there's all with each of the gospels they're sort of addressing concerns in real time. I know this is always my thing sort of um but if Jesus if the problem is Jesus's divinity is being emphasized too much or there's some sort of a heretical belief about Jesus being only divine like the gnostics um or you know his divinity and his uh, and his humanity separate, um, but but more towards divinity. Well, then the text will be more uh, tuned towards emphasizing Jesus's humanity. And if the opposite is true, if Jesus is more human, um, then the text is going to try to emphasize his divinity. Um, <clears throat> so I think that that's always something that's kind of like fascinating. Um, uh, so you can see as heresies or what will eventually become heresies in the church um, arise, there's um, certain things that are emphasized more in, in the uh, the text themselves. But I think that, um, yeah, it really, like every other question, it depends on the author you read. Um, and um, I think each of the authors of the Gospels is giving a different account of... Um, Jesus, either in his full divinity and co-equalness to God in every way, in John, um, down to Jesus feeling an immense amount of angst about the sort of questions surrounding his impending death in Mark. So it just depends on the author that you read, and I think that's to a certain extent true in the Old Testament um, for God, too. I think the El and the Elohim um, tradition is probably much more tied to omniscience, and the uh, Yahweh tradition is anthropomorphized in a lot of different ways. Um, so you have God walking around in the garden with uh, Adam and Eve. Well, not in the first creation account. In the first creation account, he's totally separate from his creation on high and um, floating above the earth and uh, playing in, playing with the depths and creating everything in the super cosmic way. So I think that there's like different um, ways that uh, God's omniscience played out in different historical times and with different authors in the Old Testament as well. Yeah, I mean, what I'm doing is just kind of looking at the text that we have it now on the surface and comparing it to the attributes and the doctrines that are taught to us every day in church all over the world. I think what you're doing makes a lot more sense, and I wish that more fundamentalist Christians would have that approach where you try to understand the circumstances uh, of 
of that these books were written in in the the understanding that the ancient world had of not only the biblical god and gods but the uh the gods of other nations as well and that will give you a little bit of insight into um you know what they may have been thinking in um you mentioned the elohim you know when we're talking about uh the tower of babel passage and you see um, God always mentioned in the plural, it's as if God is talking to himself, let us go down. And that's a, a really fascinating topic that um, I know we're going to do in the future. Um, but yeah, it's impossible to miss when you're, when you're going through these stories. But what do you think, Ben, the overall, this overall idea that Christians believe in the omniscience of God and would basically call you a heretic or not allow you in their community. This is, of course, the more uh, conservative fundamentalist churches that would do something like this. But again, it's it's a huge group of people. When I look at it, I think, how can you really blame somebody for saying God is not omniscient after reading the verses that we've been going through today? Yeah, I mean, I think that really the first step for anyone is to do what we're trying to do tonight. So the first thing to do is to read the passages and say, okay, I'm actually going to read this and see that they're not saying the same thing, that there are passages that imply that Jesus is fully omniscient, and there's passages that imply that he's not omniscient. Um, There's passages when he clearly uh, seems to know everything that's going on, um, up to his resurrection and is predicting it, and there's other passages where he can't even tell who grabbed his his cloak in a crowd. So I think the first thing is just to not force the text into some predetermined interpretation and let the text actually tell you what the text is thinking. And yeah, I mean, I think it's... Once you do that, you start seeing that, so these things are like actual problems. They're not just going to go away. It's not just um, something that is easily explainable. And there's been people that have been looking and realized these problems for hundreds of years now um, and realize that they can't be explained away. But I think that another interesting thing that I just from the the survey of verses that we uh, looked at today the idea of omniscience that we have in our mind that's sort of formulated by theology. So theology um, throughout church history and um, influenced by philosophy um, is not super flushed out in the Bible. So there's a lot of passages that sort of imply that to our reading when we're reading back on it today with that doctrine in mind. Um, but I don't think that it's always like totally abundantly clear that even those passages um, are speaking of sovereignty in the same exact way that we're speaking of it today. But yeah, but I think the most important thing to realize is that it's a it, there's a it's a complexity and um, there's not a monolithic position um, that the Bible is giving you. It's different texts uh, and different authors that are telling you different things. And that the goal shouldn't be to smash them together. The goal should be to recognize the differences and then try to draw out some more insights from there. Right. I mean, even the very nature of God is not a uniform position in every book of the Bible. And and this gets back to what we were talking about in our series on inerrancy, where the big problem here is that, that Christians try to make the Bible teach one thing. And very clearly, the Bible is not teaching one thing. And it, it also seems like 
the writers of the Bible weren't particularly interested in the in making a completely consistent philosophical picture of the nature of God. They have God not knowing something when it suits their purposes in the story, and that's fine, the way they want to tell the story. And then you have other passages where it suits them to have God knowing all and being omniscient. Um, the philosophical question of what omniscience really means is actually a very deep and complex issue. I was reading a little bit about it in the Stanford Encyclopedia, and uh, it kind of made my head spin. It's um, It gets into a lot of really thorny issues, and um, many different uh, philosophers have come to a lot of different uh, views of it. One of the big issues is free will, because if if God knows all, that means that he also knows what somebody is thinking, what somebody will do in the future, if he knows what will happen in the future, then it kind of implies that there's no such thing as free will, which um, gets into our discussion on Calvinism and uh, Arminianism. But yeah, it is a very complicated issue. I'm trying to just take the Bible the way an average person would pick it up and read it and try to understand what it is teaching as far as the nature of God. And I don't think there's any way around the idea that there is a definite contradiction here if you are trying to make the entire Bible um, speak one doctrine. This is False Witness, the segment where we take a look at four verses, three of which are real and one is false, planted mischievously by our producer, Diana. It's our job to analyze each verse and find the imposter. Once we have each made our choice, I will open the sealed envelope and reveal which verse is indeed the false witness. Go ahead, Ben. All right. Number one. For behold, this is my church. Whosoever is baptized shall be baptized into repentance. And whoever ye receive shall believe in my name, and him will I freely forgive. Number two. If you forgive anyone's sins, their sins are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. Number three. And forgive your people who have sinned against you. Forgive all the offenses they have committed against you and cause their captors to show them mercy. Number four, to open their eyes and turn them from darkness to light, and from the power of Satan to God, so that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Um, hmm, I'm going to have to go through these one at a time here, because there's a lot here. Number one, for behold, this is my church, whosoever is baptized shall be baptized unto repentance, and whosoever ye receive shall believe in my name, and him will I freely forgive. Yeah. uh, Ben, me and you just had a discussion recently about baptism, and um, this is not standing out as something that we discussed when we were looking into this. That doesn't mean that it's fake, it's just... I don't remember it. My initial thought was that this was clearly fake. Well, I mean, maybe not clearly, but I, my initial thought was that it was fake. Um, but then I, then as we went through a couple of the other options, I thought maybe they were fake. 
so it's tough. Well, um, it, we, it's talking about baptism, so it's it's clearly New Testament if it is biblical. Unless, yeah, it, it just seems really high churchy in its conception of baptism. And when I looked at baptism, I, I found the opposite to be the case in the New Testament. Um, but I could be I could be wrong. Yeah, this is this is apparently Jesus or God talking. Um, whosoever is baptized shall be baptized unto repentance, and whosoever ye receive shall be in my name, and him will I freely forgive. All right, so I'm going to um, move on to the next one. Number two, if you forgive anyone's sins, their sins are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. This seems like a something we would do on like um, Bible versus Bible, where um, it definitely seems like a verse that's in the Bible to me, but it also seems to contradict um, other verses that would have the only one with the with the ability to actually forgive sin being God Himself. Um, yeah, I think this is like the keys of the kingdom passage um, that the. Uh, that Catholics use as like, uh, you know, uh, Jesus's like commissioning of, of Peter as the rock of his church, um, and giving him the keys of the kingdom and sort of establishing the papacy, um, the Catholics view. So I think this is part of that passage. I actually think this is definitely real. Okay. That's influencing me a little bit cause I was skeptical about it. Number three, and forgive your people who have sinned against you, forgive all the offenses they have committed against you, and cause their captors to show them mercy. This sounds biblical as well. I don't nothing stands out to me as being particularly non biblical there. Yeah, it doesn't um I don't know the specific verse, but it it rings true to me. It seems like it's probably something from the old testament. Um Someone either that either David sinning or uh, somebody in Israel calling for repentance or uh, so that's sort of I think this one's probably real also. And number four, to open their eyes and turn them from darkness to light, and from the power of Satan to God, so that they may receive forgiveness of sins and place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. So originally I was thinking maybe. This was something Old Testament, but then when it started talking about sanctified by faith in me, is very much um, New Testament language. Um, and even the power of Satan, like in the Old Testament, Satan's not usually uh, personified by, he's not necessarily the counterpart, the evil counterpart to God. He's right. usually part of, so. Yeah. Yeah, so this was the problem. So I thought clearly it was number one until I got to number four, and then I started thinking that this one might be the fake, um, the false witness, because it's uh, because the Satan, um, it would have to be like from Revelation or something probably, and I'm not even totally sure in my mind if they really use the term Satan in Revelation or if it's always the beast or... Um, I don't know. So I'm really confused, but I'm torn between one or four. You know, I, I'm going to, I'm going to go out on a limb and I'm going to make the guess as number two. I Ooh. only for the reason that I just feel like I would have remembered 
this idea that, you know, I actually hold the power to like not forgive somebody's sins. <laughs> yeah. um, that's kind of an unusual thing that I feel like I would have remembered, but I'm almost certainly wrong. But that's my guess. Number two. I'm going to stick with number one. Okay. And it could be number four, I think, but I'm going to stick with number one. Okay, so now I will proceed to unseal the wax-sealed envelope that our producer, Diana, has given us. So Ben guessed that number one is the imposter, and so I'll start with number one. For behold, this is my church. Whoever is baptized shall be baptized unto repentance, and whomsoever ye receive shall believe in my name. This comes from the Book of Mormon. Yes. Mosea 26, 23. I hope I'm saying that right. Mosea. Um, or Mosiah. So that means that I'm wrong. Um, <laughs> I should have gone with my initial thought, but good job, Ben. You, uh, you sniffed yeah. that one out. Yeah, I mean, I think that you were on track with your um, thoughts about baptism, and we had we had just looked into it recently, and um, and to me, it just seems very late. Like it doesn't fit into the early church uh, conception that most of the New Testament is written in. Um, it seems a little too structured. And yeah, well, in hindsight, your analysis makes perfect sense. Yeah. Um, but let me just move on quickly, since we already know the imposter was number one. Number two, the one that I thought it was about um, forgiving anyone's sins, uh, or they will not be forgiven. That actually comes from John, Gospel of John, uh, chapter 20, verse 23. So that's actually a really fascinating verse, um, because it almost seems like you have a human being has the ability to, um, to disallow somebody's sins from being forgiven. Um, and we, yeah. And like I said, I mean, I think it's in the context of Peter and being established. Um, it's just as not to get on any type of a tangent, but just, you know, again, as evangelicals, you grow up thinking like Catholics have no basis for any of their beliefs, but there is scriptural basis for, um, beliefs that they hold. Now, whether you think that they're interpreting those verses the correct way, um, there is a reason that they think that the Pope is the one that sort of, ha or the Church is the one that holds uh, the ability to offer remission of sins. It's because of this passage. Right. But let me move on. Verse 3 is from 1 Kings 8.50, and it says, And forgive your people who have sinned against you, forgive all the offenses they have committed against you, and cause their captors to show them mercy. So that is real. And the last verse, uh, number four, comes from Acts twenty six eighteen. Oh my goodness. To open their eyes and turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, so they may receive forgiveness for sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Oh man, there was a big clue in that, the forgiveness of sins, because that's uh, Luke's whole uh, thing when it comes to uh, Jesus' uh, sacrifice. You mean the anyway. you mean the author of Acts? Yes. You said Luke. Yeah, the author of Acts. Yeah, well, we don't know if it was actually someone named Luke. I just call him Luke because I know I was not because he's. <laughs> I was trying to sarcastically point that out. 
Yeah, I was actually going to make a sarcastic comment about John having multiple authors. So even the author of John is multiple authors. Yeah. Well, so. Diana, very good. You got me. Um, but um, you're going to have to do a little bit of a little bit better than that, Diana. Yeah, Ben. Ben uh, was too good for you today. So um, we'll try again next time. Yeah, I feel like John got hung up on the verse that's actually in the Bible, but totally contradicts uh, orthodoxy, or like you know, Protestant orthodoxy. So you know, you can't really fault him for that. Yeah, I mean, I grew up in a Reformed Protestant church, so um, obviously this verse was never shown to me. Yeah, you didn't know <laughs> that actually there were there were people other than God who could forgive sins. Right, but now I know. Yeah. Ben, I thought we would finish with um, a quick segment of Bible Says What. All right, sounds good. Bible Says What? So today on Bible Says What, I just thought we would mention kind of an odd verse that we find in the Bible. So this comes from Deuteronomy 14.21. And this is in the dietary laws uh, in Deuteronomy. Um, What is okay to eat and what is not okay to eat, basically. And Deuteronomy 14.21 says, You shall not eat anything that has died naturally. You may give it to the sojourner who is within your towns that he may eat it, or you may sell it to a foreigner. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. So... I'm sorry, I shouldn't be laughing, but I think this is a pretty horrific verse. And um, it does, to be fair, I think it goes against what um, a lot of other passages in the Old Testament that talk about how you should treat foreigners kindly, um, you know, when you're not taking over their land, killing them, and uh, taking the virgins for yourselves. If you are living peacefully with the foreigner, then you should usually be kind to them. And this verse is not very kind to the foreigner uh, or the sojourner. You are allowed to basically sell them or give them roadkill that is probably not really safe to eat. Yeah, it's pretty horrific. I don't think it minimizes it at all, but so much of Deuteronomy is sort of the law being laid out for theoretically the Israelites as they're wandering in the desert. But the reality is that it was like moral precepts that were supposed to be culturally separating them from the neighboring people that they lived with in uh, Canaan. But yeah, I mean, there's no real way to make this verse sound nice. Like uh, it it is it's a total uh, juxtaposition with other places. Um, even in Deuteronomy where it tells you to care for, uh, the foreigner and welcome him, welcome the stranger. Um, well, it's not a foreigner. It's, it's like a sojourner, which is a poor person who's traveled. So it's almost like a refugee basically. Um, so a refugee that comes to your land that doesn't have anything, it's okay to give him like an animal that's died naturally and is on the side of the road. Um, if it's a foreigner who's moved there, um, and it's an alien living in your land, then you're actually allowed to sell it to them. So both of those things seem like sort of shady ethical acts. And real charity, it seems to me, would if it's if if the God of the universe is teaching us some sort of ethical principle about actual charity, it seems like charity should come from 
um, a self-sacrifice in order to help another person, um, not from just handing them dead dead uh, animals that you found on the side of the road. I also think it's funny. It's like, no, no, no. My God says I can't. I think you even said this before when we were talking about it. No, like, my God says I can't eat that, but he also says that it's perfectly all right for you to eat it. So yeah. it's just, I'm not allowed to eat this, but yeah. you can. In fact, God specifically said you can have it. Yeah, my so. God literally told me I'm forbidden from eating this, but he also literally told me to give it to you. So congratulations. I, I do think, to be fair, uh, the implications of roadkill or an animal that you find dead now is probably different than the ancient world where um, it may have been more of an acceptable practice to find a recently deceased animal that was still um, okay to eat and it was only maybe unclean in the aspect of holiness but not necessarily unclean from the aspect of being unsafe which is i think probably the most charitable interpretation you can do with this verse to say that it's it's almost like a symbolic reason for not eating it not a safety because if it's a safety reason for not eating it i think this verse has huge problems um for everything that um christians and Jews claim about the God of the Bible. Yeah, it's very unethical. Well, Ben, I've had a blast today. Yeah, this was fun. So for everybody here at the Skeptics Bible Project, we want to wish you a wonderful week to come, and we look forward to seeing you next time on the show. Yes. The Skeptics Bible Project is a John and Ben production with intro music by John Lobker. Support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash skepticsbibleproject and follow us on all social media platforms at skepticsproject. Got questions or comments? Email us at skepticsbibleproject at gmail.com. Ooh.